You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. He didn't look at an animal and say, that could rip my head off, or gee, that's the most venomous snake on earth. He appreciated and admired its beauty and its adaptability and just genuinely loved it. And I never saw him scared of anything. Crocodile hunter Steve Irwin's widow, Terry Irwin. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. In the 90s and early 2000s, one of the most popular TV personalities in the world was crocodile hunter Steve Irwin. He happily and eagerly introduced us to some of the world's most exotic and most dangerous wildlife. Ultimately, though, it was a fatal encounter with a stingray that prematurely ended Steve Irwin's life in 2006. Now, the following year, his widow, Terry, published a book called Steve and Me, and that's when I met her. So here now, from 2007, Terry Irwin. Well, originally, when I was approached, I didn't really feel like writing a book. And in February 2007, it hadn't been long since I'd lost Steve, but I was so overwhelmed with the outpouring of sympathy and love and prayers. And people would approach me and say the most amazing things. They would say, I saw an interview with you, and thank you for talking about Steve. It's helped me with my grief. And I thought, you know, I forgot that it's not just about me. So writing this book is really trying to help others who may miss Steve or be walking in my shoes or just want to know more about Steve to honor his legacy and get a good conservation message across. This really is the whole story, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. In fact, the whole story was a bit overwhelming. It was 900 pages, and my publisher said, "Mm, try again, bring it down. So it was picking and choosing from among my favorite stories, and hopefully this is the best of the best. Well, the time frame from when you more or less almost accidentally met him till the time you were engaged to the time you were on your honeymoon rescuing a crocodile and launching, in effect, the film career... That's a very short, compressed period of time. It was, and and you have to keep in mind, a lot of our courting was done overseas. So when we got married, although I met him in October of 1991 and we married the following June, we'd probably spent less than six weeks together. And Steve said the reason we were so successful with our marriage is because of his strong Australian accent. He said, I probably didn't understand what he was saying half the time. So perhaps that was the success. But it certainly was whirlwind and surreal. And I always felt kind of like I was living in a movie. Everything was just so wonderful and adventurous. And I was so happy. You know, I had my forever after. Happiness forever after. And that's how I lived, happily forever after. But when this all came crashing down, I think part of me still feels I'm living in a movie. You know, it's it's the tragic ending, and it's still not real, and I expect him to walk through the door to this day. Well, well that's the thing with somebody who was so full of life and, so, and who touched so many people. I think you, you even quoted other people in the book as saying the same thing, that they expect him to just walk in the door or walk down the street. You know, just they, they expect to see him around the next bend. It's true. And I think because of my background in faith and spirituality, I really feel one day we'll be together again. And I feel his presence, particularly at Australia Zoo. And I think that's comforting. You know, in the physical sense, I really miss him. I miss his big bear hugs and I miss being with him. 
but I still have that sense that he's around. It's very comforting. And I think he was such a daunting force in life that I think that maybe there is something to be said about the next life. You know, it, it, the phrase soulmate has become such a cliche, it's lost all its meaning by now, but you really do believe in soulmates, it sounds like. Yeah, I do. I think that if I hadn't met Steve, I probably wouldn't have married. I don't think there was anyone else in the world for me, and I still very much feel that way. I still feel like Steve's wife. I still love him and miss him. And I think even knowing how it ended, if I had the chance to do it over again, I would. But the thing of it is, I was—I I have to be honest with you. When I first got the book, I'm thinking, oh, what a sad book this is going to be. But you know what? There's only a page or two you know, toward the end of the sad part. The rest of it is this fascinating, funny, romantic story. No, I'm glad, and I meant it to be, and a lot of the memories are happy ones. I think, too, sometimes people forget when they think, you know, filming is going out with a huge crew and staying in fancy motels and drinking Mai Tais by the pool. My reality was traveling outback Australia with a couple of guys with a camera, having a great time, and if you needed to have a tub to clean up, you looked for a sheep trough or a nice muddy dam without too many dead animals in it, and off you go. And you hope that when you're wading out into the water, you don't step on a cow carcass. <laughs> that's true. That's been done. Yes, that, that's one good story for you. Having to wash my hair and brush my teeth and keep stepping on this stick, which Steve discovered was an entire cow carcass. And I'd been merrily bathing, standing in its pelvis every morning. So those yummy little treats happen from time to time. But it was fair dinkum adventure. I was going to say, I mean, this this would not have been a match for... A woman who, who cried whenever she broke a nail, you know, or got, got scared by that dinky little spider that comes up out of the bathtub drain or something like that. No, it's true. And I can remember one particular trip when Bindi came along. She was about three years old and Bindi would sleep between us so that, you know, if there were anything crawling along on the ground, the idea was it would encounter me or Steve and, and Bindi would be fine. And one night she woke up and we heard her little voice in the dark say, I have a friend. And we looked over, Steve shone the torch on her, and here's this huge desert scorpion merrily trudging up her face. So Steve said, that's wonderful, sweetheart, and gingerly scooped up the scorpion, took it a fair ways off and set it down. And in the last glowing embers of the firelight, you could see Suey the dog approaching the scorpion for a look, and the scorpion backing up the dog. <laughs> so it was very interesting. Steve struck me as, from the way you've written about him, as the kind of guy who was happy to try, even if he you know, meant sticking a porcupine quill in his arm to just to see what it felt like. No, it's true. He really experienced life. And I know when he came to Oregon and he got to meet a porcupine for the first time, it had been hit by a car and it was in at the vet hospital. And he took one of the shed quills and said, this is really interesting, stuck it into his arm and then discovered, I'll be darned, you can't really pull this out. <laughs> and so about 10 minutes later in a set of pliers. We finally got the quill out and he never whinged. He was just quite impressed at how well seated that quill was. <laughs> All right. I have to confess, years ago when I first saw him on television, I thought, who is this whack job that is getting within inches of things that could not only take his arm off, but probably take his head off? What is the matter with him? Your book helps put some perspective on that. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm glad. And and I think he had such genuine love for wildlife that it was so empowering. And, you know, it wasn't until after losing Steve that I really looked back on one of my favorite scriptures, which is, perfect love casts out fear. And I always wrestled with that. What does that mean? And then I thought, you know, that's why Steve was so fearless. He didn't look at an animal and say, that could rip my head off, or, gee, that's the most venomous snake on earth. He appreciated and admired its beauty and its adaptability and just genuinely loved it. And I never saw him scared of anything. But also, he wasn't Ellie Mae Clampett and her critters. I mean, these were not little furry human beings to him. He respected that they were animals. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point, too. And he would marvel at the charging elephant just the same as he would be amazed at an iguana that was aquatic in the Galapagos. You know, it didn't have to kill and eat you either for him to appreciate it. And he wanted everyone to understand the scheme of things, particularly with apex predators. He'd always say if we lose the crocodiles and the sharks, things at the top of the food chain, everything under them will suffer, and ultimately, ourselves. After this short break, how crocodiles and cougars made Steve and Terry fall in love. Now back to my 2007 interview with Terry Irwin. A wife often says to her husband, she says, well, honey, would you get in front of a speeding bus for me? Would you climb a mountain for me? Would you, you know, jump in the water if I was drowning? You know... Reading your book, it sounds like this kind of happened to you guys on an almost weekly basis. Yeah, you know, there's nothing more romantic than your husband saving your life from time to time. And I remember when we were first courting, and he took me into far north Queensland to do a croc research project surveying the numbers of crocodiles in this river. And we got back after this wonderful night where the stars were out and the melaleuca trees were hanging eerily over the water. The fruit bats were flapping overhead like pterodactyls. In our spotlights, millions of insects swarmed, flying into your hair and sticking to your sweat, and the insectivorous bats hunting them right in front of your nose. The huge crocodiles would be out in the water, and you could see their red eye shine. And after such an amazing night, we were de-sweating and debugging in the side of the river where it would be safe, yet Steve kept edging himself in front of me. And I finally said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I caught the last big croc out of here, but just in case there's another, I'm keeping myself between you and the river. And I thought, you got to be kidding. Is this guy for real? But to Steve, that was the way he lived. And, and he treated me as an equal as well. Because with some creatures, like the large huntsman spiders in Australia, which are about the size of your hand, he got so tired of me calling him for help every other minute that he soon taught me how to deal with my own huntsman. <laughs> All right. My wife is one of those. If those tiny little ones come up out of the drain, she you know, calls an exterminator. So I'll have to pass your book along to her. But, you know, it's, it's really... The, the kind of respect that he showed, like you said, he treated you as an equal because he didn't, it wasn't you were, he was patting you on the head saying, oh, come along, I'll protect you from these big, bad animals. You know, it's just, he understood that you had the same kind of love for the apex creatures that he did. You were, you were heavily into cougars at that point. Yeah, I did. I loved cougars. And I know when Steve and I first met, which may have been just fate or destiny by chance, I went into the zoo at Beerwa, Queensland, and Steve was doing the crocodile show. After he fed the crocodiles, and I thought he was the most amazing person I'd, I'd ever seen. Of course, he was just Steve Irwin at that time. He hadn't done any filming. And I spoke to him, and we hit it off, and it was love at first sight, and I never believed in that. 
We got to talking, and, and he found out that I loved cougars. And he said, what is it that you love about cougars? And, you know, a thousand things went through my head. But in the end, I said, you know, it's remarkable how a cougar can get a prey animal larger than themselves and kill it with their mouth, just their mouth. They don't know martial arts. They're not armed to the hilt. They just grab it with their teeth and kill it. And Steve said, crikey, that's what I love about crocs. And it, that was it. That was our connection. We fell in love over our infatuation with predators. <laughs> so did you ever have an argument who would win, a croc or a cougar? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, my favorite kids always would come in and say, if there was a shark and a crocodile. You know, I just love that. And Steve would always take every question seriously. Well, you know, if the shark was much bigger than the croc, the shark would probably win. And I did learn that in the natural world, size does matter. The biggest predator usually takes the takes the championship well, as your pet snake found out or i shouldn't say pet snake your snake companion yes well you know i did have some interesting snake encounters one was meeting rosie the boa constrictor and i was a little bit snake shy and steve said to get to know her i'll put her on the end of the sofa and you guys just let let nat nature take over and get to know each other well the snake looked at me and i looked at her and we were both a little nervous of each other and this went on for quite some time and finally one night rosie came over and tentatively rested her chin on my leg and i realized that she wasn't just going to kill and eat me and we became fast friends and now of course she's one of our dearest members at australia zoo a snake that we use to help people get over their fear of snakes and any phobias they might have and from the harmless boa constrictor to to working with fierce snakes in the deserts. Steve's taught me so much about wildlife. I know we were doing research with fierce snakes, and essentially all you have to do is catch them, wait until, well, you kind of wait until what they had for dinner is processed. How do I put this delicately? Then you let the snake go and keep the processed dinner, and you can see what they ate and learn a lot about the snake. And it's very, uh, you know, unintrusive. It's, it's a nice way to examine them. So we're following the fear snakes and, and collecting them and letting them go. And suddenly Steve said, you catch this one. And I thought, you're kidding me. This is the most venomous snake, drop for drop, on the face of the earth. Sure, I'm going to pick it up. And I reached down to pick it up, and every time the snake would turn violently in an S position on me, and I think I was going to be bitten. Well, eventually I said to Steve, what am I doing wrong? And Steve said, you're just too bloomin' scared. At which point I easily picked the snake up, immediately connected with this beautiful animal who wasn't trying to kill me, but simply get away. And, I, and that was something I admired about Steve. He didn't force his teaching upon me. He let it eventuate. He waited till I asked questions. And you know, he could have picked that snake up 10 times better than I ever could. And yet he gave me that opportunity to connect. I think that's what he tried to do with everybody in the world with his television shows, to give you that opportunity to, to connect with something out in the wild. Terry Irwin and the couple's two children continue to operate Australia Zoo. And you can find easy Amazon links to Terry Irwin's book and videos of Steve Irwin's show at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, check out my 1990 interview with Jane Goodall. When I was a child, I had two dreams. One was to study animals, work with them, learn about them, preferably in Africa. And the other was to write books about them. So how fortunate I've been that those dreams have come true. And my 1985 conversation with actress and wildlife preservationist Tippi Hedren. 
There is a great deal more to the big cat than being the ferocious animal that we have all been led to believe. He's very funny. He has a great capacity for love. Uh, he has a sense of humor. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, Pulitzer Prize-winning humor columnist and author Dave Barry. Because this weekend is Dave's birthday, so you'll hear my 1990 interview with Dave Barry. You want whoever's flying the airplane to be older than you. You want him to be Walter Cronkite, and helping him would be Eric Severide. You know? And instead, it's like the Beastie Boys. These, they're like they're, they're raising money for their class trip. You know, We're going to fly a plane today. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. 